Welcome to Humans of Magic, the podcast that gets deep and personal with your favorite Magic the Gathering personalities. I'm your host, James Sue. This is episode 79 with Mark Herberholtz. The music in this podcast is brought to you by Kupla. That's Kupla, K-U-P-L-A. You can find his music on all places that music can be found, including Spotify and SoundCloud. Before we get into the episode, I just want to say that I am super happy that Humans of Magic has reached its fifth year. Now, I know that I don't put out episodes as much as some of the other Magic podcasts, but I've always been more of a quality over quantity guy. And I want to thank you, dear listener, for following us through this journey, for allowing Humans of Magic to be a show that is in its fifth year, and I'm still very excited to be doing it. I'm still super passionate about talking to someone new every episode. And I would just love for you to continue listening. There's nothing that I'm asking for other than your support. If you enjoy this episode, please let your friends know. Please spread the word. It's much appreciated. As always, you can find past episodes on humansandmagic.com. You can also find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and wherever podcasts are found. Thank you. I want to take a moment to give some context to Mark Herberholtz. For those who have not followed competitive magic in the early 2000s or early to mid-2000s, Mark is a former Pro Tour champion, an American Pro Magic player. He has four Pro Tour top eights, including a win at Pro Tour Honolulu in 2006. He is widely known as one of the best Magic deck builders of all time and was a key member in bringing American Magic back to prominence in the 2000s. At the time, the USA was not even in the top four Magic playing countries. Mark has way too many deck building accomplishments for me to list here, so I've included a link in the show notes. You can find the show notes at humansandmagic.com. In Mark's own words, he started burning out of magic and life stuff happened in the late 2000s. And so despite being involved in magic still and playing on his own, I really wanted this episode to be a catch-up episode. I wanted to give listeners a chance to figure out What's Mark up to now? That's what I wanted to answer. What is Mark up to these days? And how has time changed him? In his day, Mark was loud, abrasive, larger than life. He was a heel in the magic competitive scene. And I think time and age and starting a family has mellows him out a little bit, and you can definitely hear that in our conversation. This is also one of my favorite episodes to record because I had conducted a little bit of research before the actual interview with Mark. I want to give a special thanks to Gabrielle Nassif, Patrick Chapin, Patrick Sullivan, and Louis Scott Vargas for being very generous with their time in talking about Mark and giving me some good and interesting research material that I could use. That is actually one thing that I regret not highlighting more strongly in the actual recording. And quite honestly, it's very hard to convey. But 
one thing that's very clear is that Mark, above all his magic achievements, all his accomplishments, his intelligence, his career, he's one of the best friends one could hope to have. When I reached out to his friends to talk about Mark, they were more than generous and they stopped everything they were doing to give me a little bit of material. So I think that speaks volumes about how great of a friend he is and loyal a friend he is to those who knew him around him. And so in typical Humans and Magic fashion, I just wanted the chance to highlight that for you and give you a sense as to the man behind the name. So I hope you enjoy this episode. This is Humans and Magic with Mark Herberholtz. Mark, how are you doing, man? Good, good. You know, like uh, <laughs> the last year has been crazy as it has been for everyone. There's definitely a new normal, but family's healthy. I'm healthy. You know, everyone's happy and doing well. That's good. So as I understand, because we're doing this online, you're in Las Vegas right now? Yeah. Yeah. I've been living here for about five years now. Okay. What prompted you to move to Vegas? Was it because of poker or some other reasons? Uh, it was because of a job. So I got a job working with a daily fantasy sports startup out here. And, you know, we ended up going under, but then I just had made some connections in town and uh, kept on getting new work in the area. Uh, before I lived out here, like I'd be, just like everyone else, I came to Vegas and I would always like blow my money at the casino or the clubs or whatever. And every time I'd come, I'd be like, I hate this place. They just always end up going home broke, you know? Um, so before I moved out here, I was thinking like, oh my God, like this is a good job, but I don't want to live in Vegas. And then you live here and you just never go to the casinos and it's just this great town with like awesome things to do and insane restaurants and you start to really appreciate it. That's exactly what I wanted to ask you about because I had been to Vegas, I believe twice in my life, but it's always been the casinos, man. It's always been like, let's go watch Cirque du Soleil and go to the casinos and uh, go to the Bellagio buffet. So I wanted to ask you, what is it actually like outside of that? Cause you just mentioned it was really good, right? Yeah. So what you see is a lot of um, like top chefs, restaurant tours, uh, you know, bar owners, people like that, they'll have a lot of success on the strip and then want to open their own thing off strip because typically when you would do it on strip, like you just don't make as much money because you're going through the casino and you're kind of just like an employee more or less. So you get these insane uh, chefs and restaurateurs and everything that come in for the casinos because it's so lucrative. And then they're like, well, I should just do my own thing. And then because real estate is so expensive on the strip, naturally they move off strip. So you get all these like gems that you find along the way that are just really awesome, just great food and not the Vegas strip prices. So there's a, a really great steakhouse by me called Echo and Rig. Um, it's like 20 minutes off the strip and awesome steaks for like 50 bucks. So you have to pay a hundred bucks for on the strip. That's awesome. And what kinds of activities are there to do in a effectively a desert i mean what because you have family now so what, what what do you guys like to do like is there a park is there is there like a hikes or or what is what is there 
Yeah, there are, their parks are pretty nice in Vegas. The thing that you wouldn't realize that makes perfect sense once you experience it is the metal on the toys in the park gets insanely hot, like on the jungle gym and everything, because the sun's just beating down on it. So in some parts of the summer, you can't really let your kid play at the park because he can just like not really burn himself, but he'll hurt his hand if he touches uh, the metal. There's a really good nightlife, you know, outside from like the club scene, just like good, cool bars to go to. Uh, if you want to, if you're a sports fan, there's some bar in Vegas that, you know, is your team's bar. And then um, there's like a, Red Rock Canyon National Park and Mount Charleston, both are about like a 30 minute drive from Vegas. They have really good like hikes, um, and kind of just more outdoorsy stuff. Awesome. And you're a big sports fan, right? I think it came up before in our chats. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm a big Michigan State basketball fan, went to Michigan State and then a big NFL fan, big NBA fan. And then the Detroit teams like, you know, Red Wings for hockey, Tigers for baseball, like I'll follow them. Uh, I'm, I'm more of a fair weather fan though. It's, we're doing good. I'll tune in, but don't have the time to just know like who's the best minor league Tigers player. Okay. I met, I, I noticed you didn't mention the Detroit Pistons. So I guess you're, you're off that bandwagon. <laughs> oh man. I was, I was, I was a fan for so long and the Blake Griffin trade just destroyed me because it was like, how it ended is exactly how you would have thought it would end it. And how could we have not foreseen this? That was just, yeah. Blake has just seen this catastrophic decline, right? And I can't blame him because it's his injuries and his legs failing him, but he was also the last remnant of the Van Gundy era. So it was sort of like, we kind of all saw it coming. It happens that one of my best friends is uh, from Detroit and is actually still there after having lived in China for a long time. But so we, he almost never talks about the Pistons. It's, it's like I always just read up on it and I try to try to dagger him with stuff, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's you have Blake Griffin, who was like the wrong side of 30, a lot of leg injuries, and his whole game is built on athleticism. That's not going to end well when you trade for him. And is Miles Bridges from Michigan State or is that the other Michigan? Uh, Michigan State, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's been doing very well. He's been getting a lot of very nice Lamelo ball lobs and passes. So I'm seeing him. I'm seeing him a lot in the highlights this year, at least. Yeah, he's a pretty awesome dunker. So he's like the perfect fit on the other side of Lamelo. Yeah, uh, and also going back to a bit of what you said, or I guess maybe it was implied. You so you have a family now, like you have a you have a kid. Yeah, what's that been like as a being a dad and being I assume with a partner or married or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I have a partner, um, Melissa, and then we have a five-year-old son. Um, it's awesome. You know, it's, you don't understand until you have a kid and everyone says that and it sounds so cliche, but it's true because your life just changes. Like your free time just evaporates and you give away a lot of that freedom in that sense. So like I have almost no time to play magic unless I like get away for an event because when you have a kid running around, they just dominate your time so much. Like when they're younger, you basically have to keep them alive. And then when they get older, they just like want you to witness all of the things that they're doing and things that they're learning. So he just loves it. Like when he plays Minecraft and he just, I just sit on the couch and watch him play. So he can like tell me all the cool things that he's building. That's, that sounds very rewarding. So I, I'm not a dad yet, but uh, that, that sounds really 
really nice. And he, he's a, uh, did you say he was like five years old or something like that? Yeah. Five years old. Okay. So has already started school, kindergarten, the works. Yeah. He, he's, he was like right at that uh, break point. So he's going to start kindergarten next fall, but yeah, has been going to like a preschool for a few years. So has all of his little friends and everything like that. Are you going to, or have you already taught him magic, the gathering? I have taught him a little bit, so he can't read yet, but I've taught him like, you know, power and toughness and like what the different, you know, kind of high level, what creatures do. And he loves it. Like he just loves magic cards. He made me buy him a bunch because he sees that I have magic cards and thinks like, oh, dad's doing that. must be really cool. (laughs) So like, you know, give me some magic cards. So I uh, actually sent a text before Christmas to uh, Pam Willoughby from R.I.W. Hobbies in Michigan and was like, hey, Rocky's just all about magic cards. Like, I need to get some for Christmas. Figured I'd go to you to, you know, if I'm going to spend money somewhere, like spend it with you. And she just like sent me like four or five booster boxes and a bunch of spare packs. And the spare packs were all the collector's packs that just have like all foils and everything. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my God, I did not expect this. And, <laughs> you know, she just, could love the fact that Rocky was getting into magic. And I'm like, wow, I was asking for some magic cards, not a college fund. I guess I got to go out and get him like a binder and some sleeves and kind of teach him about taking care of his cards. Right. Right. You got to teach the, the <laughs> secondary market, like uh, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. So that's actually a good transition. I had done a little bit of research about your background, obviously, but why don't we start from the beginning? Tell me like how you started playing magic and it, it sounded like riw was like one of the first seminal stores for you at least for tournaments but maybe go back even farther than that like how did you get involved with magic in the first place yeah uh when i was 12 i was in boy scouts and then on weekend campouts, like all the kids were just playing magic and it just started to catch on to where it started like two kids were playing and then the next month's camp out you go there's six kids and then the next month's camp out there's like 15 kids and there's only like four kids not playing so i kind of just started playing because i'm like well i don't want to just sit here by myself doing nothing and i love going on these campouts, um and my friends are doing it and then i just like instantly fell in love with the game before that i had been a very avid like baseball card and sports card collector um and just had tons and tons of cards. And this was like back in the 90s when like there was kind of a boom for those. Um, but when I saw magic cards and learned how to play the game, I'm like, this is so much better. Not only are these collectible, but they do something. There's a game. Like this is this is the future. You know, I'm 12 years old. So I would go to like a trading card show and like trade all my sports cards to get boxes of magic cards and then I'd like bust them open and then take the dual lands because like what do I care these are just a land and trade those back for more packs and was just like constantly trying to amass more and more cards I'm super into it and then I, I kept up with it throughout you know middle school high school and uh, when I was around 16 I played in my first tournament and I, I won it and it was just something that a bunch of like friends put together um, we like actually played at a local church that just let us use their space. So I was like, oh, this is cool. Like I'm pretty good at this game. So then I just started researching where to go to tournaments. Like we'll look in like Scry or Inquest for lists of them and then just like go to them. And the uh, first PTQ that I went to was like an extended PTQ and people are playing um, 
the enduring renewal combo deck was like the big thing then. And I literally have an unsleeved like red green beatdown deck that's like 73 cards or something like that, you know. But I go like four and three and I'm like, you know, static. So I'm like, it's my first tournament. I have a winning record. And at that tournament, uh, this is when Tempest came out. So everyone was talking about uh, her scroll, but there was this like really brash guy who was just talking about how scroll rack was really the best card in Tradewind Rider. He basically had a deck with Tradewind Riders and Stripe Bears and Birds of Paradise and scroll rack and just was like trying to play everyone for Auntie. And it was just like, I remember thinking like, wow, this guy's like, super confident and seems really good. And then, you know, hadn't really played tournaments for maybe like a year after that. I went to this place called Pandemonium. I saw that guy again. He was just like crushing everyone at the tournaments there. That guy was Patrick Chapin. So I just like immediately kind of like idolized him to some degree. And was just like, this is the guy, you know, like I need to learn from this guy if I want to be great at magic. So I would just like you know, try and talk to them, play with them as much as I could, just find any way to just kind of like interact and, and as it came to magic with them. And this is when he was in his like 18, 20 something, somewhere around there. So when you're that age and you're like a single guy, you usually just like want to go out and party or whatever. So yeah, he wasn't too down to just like hang out and play magic on a Friday night. And I'm like, you know, 17 or whatever. That's all I want to do. So you, he was a little bit older than you, but he was already like playing. Yeah, he was like four or five years older than me. And he was like the best. Like he was like, uh, had some PT top eights at this point. It was just like clearly the best player in Michigan. Like not even close. Um, right. so, and just to have access to someone like that, having access to someone who like top eight at a pro tour. Well, when you're getting into tournaments, you're just like, it seems so surreal. Like it's like, playing baseball with Mike Trout or something like that. Like, you know, like you're, you're just like, Unfair wow. advantage as it were. Yeah. Like I can actually play against this person and they'll like help teach me. And we can talk about like how the game went and like what I did right and what I did wrong and why they drafted the deck they did. And that kind of access was just growing up as a sports fan. You're like, this is insane. I can't believe I have this. I just ate it up and it just like, Kind of fueled my competitive drive because as I started doing it more and more, I started realizing like, wait, I'm spotting other people's mistakes. Like they're not spotting mine. Mm-hmm. So like, why can't why can't I just be good enough to do this? And then that just kind of fueled me. Can you tell me also a bit about your maybe your family background? Like, tell me a little bit about your parents and like kind of like where you were at. Uh, in your life before magic before boy scouts even yeah uh just like pretty typical uh american family like parents still together to this day grew up in a suburb of detroit um you know played like little league and basketball and stuff like that when i was a kid uh dad coached my little league team um and then when i started getting the magic like they would drive me to tournaments, drop me off at the little hobby shop for hours on end, you know, all that type of stuff. So they were uh, certainly supportive of it as like a hobby. But then when I started to go all in and just was like, I'm going to do this for a living. They were like, well, maybe you should get a college degree too, if you want to do that, mm-hmm. <laughs> which makes perfect sense. Cause back then, like at one point I was, uh, 
you know, number one rated PCI player, which, you know, doesn't really mean anything because ratings are typically driven by like you just, your last tournament and how hot did you run? But that's like some cool stat. Uh, but I always just think about that and think at my peak, I was making like 40 or 50 grand a year. Like you can't like turn that into a career and then have a family and stuff like that on that kind of money, especially with like no benefits. So it was definitely my parents knew best when they were pushing me to get a degree and like start thinking more, thinking more long-term about what I wanted to do from a career standpoint. So maybe you got this from your, your family, but you were always financially sort of conscious of like, you know, choices that you, you made had to be somewhat sensible, right? Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's funny because that is something that I always had in mind, but I was always like a big risk taker because I had the realization that like, I was lucky enough to, uh, you know, have my parents help pay for some of my college. And, you know, I took out student loans and I was able to use my magic winnings to pay those off. So I basically didn't really have any debt. So I could just take like a lot of chances with what I wanted to do in my life and not be in a really bad financial spot as a result. And I just kind of took advantage of that where I was, you know, playing poker or playing magic or stuff like that. And, you know, I had, was lucky enough to have some pro poker friends who were just very like successful and liquid and friendly enough to like loan me some money if I ever got in a jam. So I had like a really great safety net in that sense. And that just enabled me to really find my own way, like try magic out, have a lot of fun, like gained a ton from it, realized it's not what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. And then just kind of moved into a somewhat normal career path. I know it's always hard to look at oneself for something like this, but why do you think you got so became so competitive? Was it through just playing sports at a younger age? Is it just like natural since birth or like, what was it that made you become so competitive? Cause I'm thinking about your, your magic career and you really pushed yourself to be the best you could. And that must've come from somewhere. So can you explain that somehow? I just, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't so much sports or anything like that. I guess I just always wanted to be the best. And it was usually if something, if I was skilled at something. So like, what's a good example? Like baseball, I wanted to be really great at baseball and I was good at it. Like I was a really good hitter in little league. Um, so I just love baseball and just tried really hard and would always try and get my dad to take me out and practice. And then we either go to like the park or if he didn't have time to do that, I just feel like, let's just play catch for 10 minutes. Let's just play catch, you know, just like always trying to like improve and practice. And then with magic, like I started to naturally just rise to the top out of my group of friends. And then I started to learn about tournaments and it was always just like, I believe that I could continue like improving and succeeding. And that just fueled me to keep on trying harder. And, and when I looked around at everyone who was doing great and whenever I play against them in like a money draft or something like that, I could hold my own. I just didn't have like the pro tour top eight yet. That just fueled me even more that like, I can do this. Like I just didn't get the the right break. Like, you know, maybe I'm mulliganed in a key match or something like that. So that it's like the reverse of imposter syndrome. I, I guess I just had a lot of confidence. And mm-hmm. um, have you ever read Moneyball? Yes, I have. There's a great part in Moneyball that just resonated so much with me. And it was uh, when Billy Bean was sitting in the dugout 
with Lenny Dykstra. And Billy Bean was just, uh, Nolan Ryan was pitching and Billy Bean was like a head case. And he attributes that to why he wasn't great because he just like got too much in his head and it never let him hit. And he said, Lenny Dykstra was just looking at Nolan Ryan. And it's like, who the heck is this guy? And I don't know if I can use swear words. So I'll amend it. You can say bit. whatever you want here, by the yeah. way. It's, it's totally fine. Yeah. He's like, who the fuck is this guy? Look at this yeah. fucking guy. I can hit this fucking guy. And Billy Bean's like, that's Nolan Ryan. And it's like yeah. Lenny Dykstra's mentality of it doesn't matter who you are. I just believe in myself enough that I can do it. And like when uh, Dion Waiters wrote his piece where he would like go one-on-one against Kevin Durant. And he's like, I went in there thinking I'm better than Kevin Durant. Right. And he's like, everyone's going to say I'm crazy. And he's like, I, but I believe to the core of me that I'm better than Kevin Durant. And that's what got me to the NBA. That's what got me like out of the projects. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have that kind of upbringing, but like, I always just believe that it doesn't matter who I'm sitting across from. I could beat them. It's very important. Now you had mentioned, or I should say in talking to Patrick Chapin, he was actually quite surprised that by his own admission, he was in a different space back then. He was uh, doing things that, um, maybe some things that were good and some things that were not so good that an 18 year old should be doing. He was just saying he was real surprised that, you know, you were like a 14, 15 year old and you had actually approached him to be like, Hey, I want you to show me some stuff or teach me more about magic. It's hard for me to imagine that even because like, it seems like such a, a tough thing for any 14 year old person kid to do is to ask effectively like a, a cooler adult or a young adult, like, show me the ways and just from just out of the blue. Right. So do you remember like what spurred you to do that? Cause it doesn't seem that common or easy to most people. It was definitely just like, he was just the guy, he was the best. And from the first time I saw him at that PTQ, like a year earlier to when I really started like talking to him, I was like, it's that same guy. And he's still just like crushing everyone. Like he's just the best player. So I started like, talking to other people like who is that guy and they're like oh that's Patrick Chapin he just like top eight of the pro tour he's you know he's like the best player in Michigan and I, I knew like well how could I pass up a chance like this so I just like tried to make friends with them asked them some questions like and tried to do it in a way that wasn't uh I guess like eating up too much of his time or just like being socially unaware you know, if we're just like sitting there waiting for a match, I'd say like, Hey dude, do you mind like looking at my deck and tell me what you think? You know, stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, so he received it well, like how did he first receive it? Like when you just ask him out of the blue questions or, you know, want to hang out with he him? Was, he was awesome. He, I mean, you know, the, the hanging out part didn't really happen too much outside of the hobby shop until we got older, but like he would just give me a ton of time. Like he looked through my deck, he dissected he talk about draft picks. He talk about like what he thinks the best cards are in draft, what the best cards are in constructed and why. Um, so he was just like awesome. Like in back then there, there weren't a lot of people like that. It was very, uh, it was very before the, the woke culture when everyone realized like, Hey, we should just be nice to new players and try and, uh, you know, help them grow in the game. Instead, it was very like, oh, I'm better than you. Why am I talking to you? Okay, it was generally nastier back then from what I remember. Oh, yeah. And he was just like a great ambassador for the game. And was just, it wasn't just me. Like, he would just give everyone his time like that. And that 
then when I started getting good, like obviously I tried to pay it forward as well too. And anytime anyone would do that, or I'd even just say like, uh, if you play against a player that you can tell, like in sealed deck, they don't really understand how to construct a sealed deck. I just offer like, Hey, do you, do you mind if I take a look at your sealed deck, like look pretty fun. And then here you can look at mine and then they'll kind of see how I constructed mine. And I could use that as a segue to maybe like help them out a little bit without making it seem like I'm some jerk who's just telling them they did something wrong. Yeah. It's important not to uh, condescend sometimes doing things the wrong way will just turn somebody off the game forever as I have uh, seen many times in the past. So what about Patrick Chapin? How do you think he got so good so early? Because it's especially impressive in a, in, in an era where there really isn't a lot of information online. Like you kind of had to figure things out for yourself or you kind of had to hang out with people who did have things figured out. So you obviously learned from him, but how do you think he got those powers is it is was it just like a natural intuitive thing yeah he definitely is just a, a natural talent and it's like why he's a you know top tier like best of the best game designer as well he just like understands the game at the top level and what's powerful and what's not and what you should be doing so that made him very early on be a great deck builder and then that kind of success like He's also a good technical player, but if you're a great deck builder in the, you know, kind of beginnings of the internet era, you're just so far ahead of everyone. Yeah. Just incredible edge. I mean, he's an incredible player deck builder. You're an incredible deck builder and player as well. You just told me that you had a winning record in your first magic tournament. So where, where do you think you are now? Again, this is hard to look into oneself, but like, how did your natural ability with magic come about? Like, did you just have some intuition about the game? Um, for me, like I was always really good at technical play. So the like playing of the game, sideboarding, I was good. Uh, the deck building definitely just came over time. And it was just like, you know, I kind of brute forced it where I just kept building decks, kept building decks. They kept sucking, kept looking at decks that were good, trying to understand why, tried to figure out a format, why the good decks were the good decks and why the decks I was trying out stunk, talked to as many people as I could and eventually just started learning more and more. And it's like, I started becoming a pretty good deck builder in maybe like 2004. And so how many years was that? So you had already been- in <laughs> like 12 years or 11 or yeah. Okay, so you got your 10,000 hours or maybe even longer amount of hours. Yeah, and when it comes to deck building, um, my biggest strength is uh, I think I iterate faster than any anyone I've seen. Like I can identify if a strategy is worth putting effort into or if it's not quicker than anyone I've ever worked with. And that just helps me know where to focus my time and then can better tune stuff. Uh, occasionally I've come up with just like really good deck ideas. Um, but I'm not, you know, like Nassif is much more creative than me to come up with just a very unique deck idea, uh, Chapin as well. I was a very good compliment to them because I could iterate faster and help focus like the team's time on the right things and really like push them to, uh, be honest with themselves when it comes to like, why do you think this deck is good? You know, like we're, we're tracking the results. It's not winning, you know, it's not unlucky over, you know, a hundred games, stuff like that. 
And how did you learn to do that? Like basically iterate fast and cut your losses, you know, like a lot of, I think it's like anything in life. A lot of people just don't know when to, when to quit. Right. Yeah. It's, that is hard to say. Cause it's more of like an intuitive feel as you play the games out. Cause so often magic games are just so close and it's like, Oh, you had a top deck at this key time. Like you drew cryptic command. So I don't know, this game feels kind of lucky or like, I mulligan to six, like, I don't know, like I mulligan, what do you want? And it's just like eliminating all that noise and just trying to focus on the data. It's like, it doesn't matter how close the game feels at the end of the day. It's just if you won or lost. So even though you're losing, you know, 70, 30 or 60, 40 or something like that, the games could all feel close. You could almost all feel like you're just right there, but it still doesn't matter. The numbers are just the numbers. But sometimes feeling close gives you perhaps a false hope or promise that with just a little bit of more fine tuning, it, it won't, you'll win, right? Or you'll turn the corner. So it sounds like you were taking like, a, I was expecting you to be like more qualitative, but it sounds like you had a quantitative approach to this, right? Yeah. And I've certainly fallen for the trap. Like I've played some horrible decks where I just didn't want to give up and like, oh, I just, I'm so close. I just got to tweak it. I just got to tweak it. Like, um, when Nassif came up with the fairies deck in Berlin, the, the one that LSV won with L's, fairies was like the dominant deck of that format. And it went on to dominate GPs and worlds afterwards. He had that and he's like, hey, you should play this. I'm like, ah, you know, I'm gonna have to go out and buy all the cards. It's gonna be like 500 bucks or something. And like, I've been, I've been t- tuning my deck. Like, I'm just gonna stick with it. And my deck was so bad. It was like a gifts ungiven, slow control grindy deck that like barely beat Zoo and lost everything else. It was so bad. And it's just because I kind of like fell in love with it. And was that's like that type of deck is really fun for me, that like toolbox deck. So I'm just like wasn't honest with myself. So it was a kind of a learning in that event or tournament where you got emotionally attached and you were also like thinking about practicalities. Like I didn't want to buy a new deck, it sounded like. Yeah. And I mean, back in those days, it's like your EV at a tournament isn't that great. So when you're thinking about like spending $500 for a deck, it's like you literally better be buying the best deck in the format. <laughs> for sure. Going back a little bit. So, you know, you played, you, you're playing in Michigan uh, at RIW, right? Pam's store. Do you remember what was like your first major like level up? moment it doesn't have to be a tournament finish but like was there any point in time where you kind of looked at yourself you're like i leveled up here or i sort of this is a big milestone you you know something like that yeah it was definitely um the first uh ptq top eight i had because i played in like 20 or 30 ptqs before i top eighted one and i was always just like i don't get it like why am I not top eighting? I'm like winning our Monday night type two tournament. I win our like Thursday night drafts, like all the guys I'm playing against they're top eighting. Like, why am I not top eighting? And like top eighting a PTQ finally like just felt like getting the monkey off my back. Yeah. And then uh got into some other top eights and then it was like winning one. And then I won one. And it was just like, oh, that was easy. Like you just win a tournament. And then I just found it really easy to win PTQs after that. And then it was like the pro tour, like just kept scrubbing out at pro tours. And then I had a a grand prix top eight where I was like, Oh yeah, that was easy. Like I just like cruised through that field. Um, And then like the, my first pro tour top eight, uh, same thing was just like, 
draft and drafted had a bunch of three O decks and I was looking back, it's like, Oh, that was so easy. So it's just like all those moments where I had like this big hump to break over. And when I did looking back, I'm like, why did I even think that was hard? So by your own admission, you had always been, you always had confidence. So before you had those moments, like top eighting the PTQ, winning the PTQ, uh, top eighting a GP, etc. Did you have any doubts about yourself as a player? Or is it just like it was there, but it was it was like overwhelmingly more the confidence that allows you to to keep going? Like I can hang with everybody else at the room. Yeah, it was, uh, I didn't really have doubts. I definitely had confidence because I was just using the data I had where I'm like looking at how I compete against these players that are successful and, you know, whatever tournament I can or money draft or something like that. And I'm beating them. So, uh, and it's not like they're outplaying me when they beat me. So I'm giving as good as I got. So that just kept driving me. The times when I did have doubts was more just like, well, I think I'm good enough, but at the end of the day, there's still a luck factor and magic. And it's like costing a lot of money to fly to all these tournaments. So it's funny because my, my first PG top eight, actually didn't test that much. It was a booster draft format. And I kind of just like said, I think this is going to be my last one. And if I don't do well, I'm going to focus on school because I had really just like failed a couple classes, put way too much time into magic. Cause it's this most is when you were college. in college. Yeah. So pretty typical college magic player story. Um, and then I just went and ran, ran hot and played well and top aided. The rest is kind of history. It's incredible how many players I've talked to who all said something very similar. Like, this is going to be my last event. You know, if I don't do well here, uh, I'm not going to... I get this sort of like, what do you call that? Survivorship bias? It's like, I guess we ended up talking or knowing people that actually got the coin flip to in their favor, right? And then they ended up continuing. Otherwise, it'd be another alternate reality where like Mark Herberholtz never continued his career and uh, just kind of continued his studies or something like that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's it's always, it's always, um, I remember talking to LSV and he was talking about that sliding doors moment, right? Like if you, if you know the movie sliding doors, it's like an alternate reality. One day this, uh, this woman like either got into the door of the train or, or didn't. And it kind of, the movie plays out where there's like two realities. And for Luis, I think he also said it was like that for him too. Like he had some close calls where he was like, if I didn't win this tournament, I don't think I'd be here today in the same capacity right yeah what was college like for you i heard that you studied uh box making can you describe <laughs> like what that is for the uninitiated yeah so i got a degree in packaging and michigan state ha happens to be like the best school in the country for packaging and it could be a couple of things so you could work with like fedex more on like a logistics and shipping you could work for a company that makes like packages themselves to test like, you know, when is the box going to break if I drop it from 10 feet and it has 50 pounds and it, stuff like that. Or it could be more design oriented where you're working on like the next Coca-Cola bottle label. So what really drove me to packaging is originally I went to Michigan State for, and I was going to be like a business major, but then I was just playing too much magic and my grades were too bad to get into the business school. So I was like, what's a degree that I could get that is marketable in some way? And it's like, oh, packaging. Packaging is actually really marketable. And from talking to people, it was a really easy degree. So I was like, I'll be a packaging major. And I have never used my degree since, but that's how I arrived at it. 
But hey, man, you 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 stuck it out. You got your degree, so that's uh, that's commendable for sure. Yeah, it definitely makes my mom happy that that piece of paper exists somewhere. <laughs> Might be hard to find it somewhere in the in the closet or whatever, but it's there somewhere, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice, nice. So uh, by the time you were in college, you had been already kind of a magic pro, right? You've been you have to travel to all the events and uh, do all that kind of stuff. So I mean, how how much time did you spend on like magic preparation during the course of a week on average? You were basically living and breathing magic, I assume. Yeah, this was uh, like before Magic Online existed. So my first pro tour, I went to my freshman year of college. And before that, I'd been to like US Grand Prix and stuff like that, PTQs, whatever. Um, So before Magic Online, it was just like, a lot of just proxying up decks, playing against myself, drawing up hands, trying to imagine out turns versus a different deck, all that type of stuff. Uh, occasionally, occasionally played some apprentice games. I don't know for the, for oh, the OGs that was the out there. Magic content, right? Uh, magic, yeah. uh, magic online. Yeah, the unofficial one. Yeah. So played some of those, um, but yeah, we um, we would. Eric Taylor was really awesome and he hosted a Thursday night draft at his house every week. That was like invite only to some of the top Michigan players. And we usually get maybe like 12 to 16 people that would show up. So you could have a draft and then like have some people to play constructed with. And I went to that every Thursday for like two or three years until he kind of, it just kind of died down. And that was like, that was amazing. That was, that was like my magic incubator. That's amazing. I mean, it, it's all about who you hang out with and how how you can get competition and level up your game. So during that era, like when you were in college or like going to PTs, like was there a particular rival or nemesis that you had? Was there anybody that you always felt like you you were evenly matched with them, him or her, and just like and then somehow like it was like kind of 50-50 between between you and and that person? Um I was at like a really unique time in magic where there wasn't a clear cut top player. So when I was like on the pro tour, it was probably Kenji was the best player, but Kenji's just like the nicest guy in the world. So I could never really get that competitive drive to have him be like my nemesis or something. Yeah. Um, so that was rough. Like Olivier Ruel was like a top player and uh, I didn't, like as a person, whatever, he's fine. But as a player, I didn't really like him because he had kind of a bad reputation. Mm-hmm. Um, like he, at one point he got banned because he was like looking at someone's sunglasses that were hanging on their shirt to see the cards in their hand. Okay, he wasn't a completely clean player. Got it. Yeah. Right. So I had a little bit of a rivalry there. But for me, it was mainly just pushing myself. It's funny that the biggest rivalry I think I had was probably with LSV. Like he came on and started being really successful when I had already like, I was still on the tour, but had fallen off and wasn't losing interest or was losing interest in the game. But every time I played against LSV, it just like drove me to like bring my best game and not only bring my best game in the gameplay, like I would work them. I'd, I'd run my mouth. I'd like try and hustle them. Like I would do whatever because I'm just like, Oh, he wants to be the best now all right, well, we'll see if he's the best because I think I can still beat him. Just just being just the competitive juices, that kind of thing, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. That was my like, you know, I'm, I'm the the washed up pro and that's my still got it moment. <laughs> You're like the the guy in the pickup game who still got the uh, <laughs> the old man moves, uh, relatively speaking, right? Comparatively speaking, you can still yeah, just, score when you need to. <laughs> yeah, just amazing post game hits every bank shot. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually talked to Luis about this, uh, this topic. Uh, it was actually Chapin who very strongly recommended that I talk to Luis about about you, because uh, I actually, I'll have to share the recording with you later, but uh, somehow you always got Luis's number. And why do you think that is? Like, it's just like he, it sounded like he just brought out your, your A game or you had some kind of like psycho- psychological advantage over him. Like, what was it? I think uh, when he started coming onto the scene and playing in the pro tour, like I was the best American pro. So I think part of it was like, you know, I was, I was the guy that he was kind of looking to be. So there was probably some of the, him in his head, always thinking, you know, some part of him, maybe thinking Mark is better than me, which is not true. Luis is much better than me. I I can definitely accept that. Although I can probably still beat him every now and then. (laughs) Um, But I, I think I just kind of like figured him out, like, figured out how to needle them. It's like the stuff that you wouldn't do in a, a pro tour match. And I don't, it's like definitely borderline unsportsmanlike, but you're, when you're in a friendly money draft, that's like, that's when that stuff goes. So just like know how to needle them, know how to get under his skin. Like when he made a bad play, point it out. When I made a good play, you know, point it out, just like try and get in his head and, uh, by the time, like I just kept on winning against him in those types of scenarios. Like I would, I really owned him in money drafts. I think like it starts becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Can't, can't get out of his own head, you know? Tell me about the money draft stuff because he told me a very interesting story. How like this one time you and Sperling and the Seif appear to be inebriated and somehow did a, yeah. Tell me the story about that one. Yeah, so we were, this was at uh, Pro Tour Kuala Lumpur, and Sperling, I stayed with him at the hotel, and he just randomly paid like $20 more to get a suite. I'm just like, oh, whatever, it'll be nice to have some extra room. And it turns out if you got a suite at this hotel, there was an open bar from like 4 to 6 p.m., and it wasn't like crazy, but they had some decent stuff like, you know, Black Label or Smirnoff or whatever. So we basically left the site and ran back there to just drink as much as we possibly could in two hours. And then ran back to the site at 6 p.m. You know, we I think we like lost by round four of the pro tour. So we we just got pretty sauced up. And like LSV uh, and Chian and, and one other guy were around. So we just grabbed Nassif who was just hanging around. We're like, let's do a money draft. And like, we just reeked of booze at this point. So we kind of cobbled So they together. thought it, you guys were easy money because you guys were like not not thinking coherently and stuff, right? Of course. So we bet we played for like 20 or 40 bucks or something like that, like pretty standard stakes. Um, but they beat us and they beat us five, four, like it came down to the deciding like ninth match and all along the draft, like Sperling and I are just like running our mouth nonstop. We're just being like drunk, belligerent idiots, like rubbing it in every time we win, every time we have a good play, like rubbing it in whenever they do something bad. So they're just like super riled up at this point. And then we're just like, run it back. And they're like, yeah, obviously. We're like, for 100? And like, yeah, obviously. And, and Sperling and I are both thinking in our heads, it's funny we talked about it afterwards, but we're both like, you 
barely beat us and we just had three hours to sober up. How do you think this is going to end? <laughs> and we just like destroyed him in that next draft. That's really funny because uh, Luis thought that you guys pulled a fast one. Like you guys were not actually drunk that it was planned all along, but it, it sounded like, no, it sounded like you guys were actually buzzed, right? Oh yeah. We were, we were certainly drunk for the first game of that, that first draft. Yeah. Um, along these lines, I also heard that you have always been really big on, on prop bets. So like, what's, what's, what are some like prop bets that you had going on, like, in a magic context, maybe at a magic event or, or something like that? Uh, probably the most fun one was I did a negative split with Jeff Cunningham where you had to pay out a percentage on what the other person won because we had kind of a rivalry. Like when I was doing well, I was the guy that he was looking at like, why can't I be doing well? Mark's doing well. I'm just as good as Mark. And, you know, Jeff was a really strong player, just kind of didn't have like the breaks that I had, or maybe just wasn't as skilled. And we just kind of had this rivalry. So that was really fun because then you get a, we had this awesome moment at the end of every round where we walk up to each other. We kind of feel each other out to see if they were happy or sad to try and know what their record was before asking it. Uh, we'd be like really coy about telling the other person what our record was. Right. Cause either way, I guess it would not be great for the other person to know in some way. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, Jeff Cunningham, he's written some really good content or maybe he, he might be like one of the best among one of the best like magic writers of all time, just from like tournament reports and stuff like that. Uh, did you have a rivalry with him in that sense too? Like in terms of the writing and the content? No, it was definitely, I mean, like we, we would joke around a lot that we were like each other's nemesis. Um, but it was, it was more around like the playing side. We, we like tested together for a PT um, Philadelphia, which was champions of Kamigawa block. And then I kept on trying to get him to play the gifts on given deck. And I ended up top 80 and, and he had like some, some like legends deck with time of need to tutor for legends. And he was just thought that was great. So I, I rubbed it in a little bit that he didn't play my deck. And then at Honolulu, I saw him and the players meeting. And back then you didn't have to register your deck up until like, you know, 8 a.m. the day of. So I was like, dude, you should play my red green deck. It's pretty good. He's like, you tested a lot not really played about five games and then switched a bunch of cards, but I got a good feeling about it. And he's just like, nah, I'm good. I'm going to play my greater good deck. And I won the tournament. So I kind of rubbed it in there too. So <laughs> then that just like created this little bit of a rivalry between us. Yeah, absolutely. Although I guess, I mean, in hindsight, you made the right choice, but at the time it probably seemed like a, a tough sell to him to, to take your deck, right? Just because you had five games with it. Yeah. I was just like, I just, I know these cards are good. I just know the format well enough. That's a good change. Like you should play it. I tried to get Riesel to play it. He stuck with Zoo. Um, there were like a couple others and everyone's like, nah, I'm going to stick with my deck. So that's a really interesting case because from my research, it seemed like you were effectively built. This is related to the deck building topic too. It like you effectively figured out how to next level everybody because like you were basically you're playing like main deck cards that should not be in the main deck like you were basically reconstructing like the red and green parts of the deck to 
basically not have any sacred cows, like where everyone else is like thinking about how do I not look silly, but you were just like, maybe this is consistent in your whole magic career too. I don't, you can tell me, but like, you're always trying to swing for the fences, right? You're always like trying to just always reconstruct from ground zero what a deck should be or what deck should be the one to win a PT. Like you're never afraid to, to go for it. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Yeah. So, you know, like some of the decks I made were just like the best deck. Uh, no, nothing really creative. It was just about tuning. Like the two block constructed PTs I had were like the, the obvious control deck that I just tuned better than someone else. Um, but for the red green deck at Hawaii, basically what happened was there was zoo and then there was all these control decks that were having all these cards to beat zoo and the cards that they would beat zoo were essentially like wrath of god faith's fetters and locks it on hierarch so then the red green deck that we were playing at the time had better mana than zoo so it didn't take as much damage from its lands so that allowed it to be competitive with zoo but it had like uh volcanic hammer and landlord elf and rumbling slum but those cards are all pretty bad against like Fate's Fetters and Wrath of God and Lockstone Hierarch. So I just realized like, oh, I could just take all these out for, you know, Frenzied Goblins and uh, Scorch Rasalkas and Giant Solifuge and Flames of the Blood Hand. And those cards will be really good against like, uh, the Goblin was just really good because control decks would have one big creature to stop you. So you make it so it can't block and you get through. Rosalco stops Fate's Fetters from gaining life and then, you know, gets a little bit extra damage when they Wrath. And then Solifuge can't be Fetters, great, you know, post-Wrath creature to play. And Flames of the Blood Hand is awesome to just have as almost like a counterspell to the life game. So that was just like me theorizing. And I just like threw it together, played some games, won a few games, never cast a giant Solifuge before the tournament. And was just like, yeah, this is it. Like it just, it just feels really good. So then I, I tried to get people, you know, in on it, tried to convince them, but obviously I didn't really play any games. So it was a pretty hard sell. And I was just confident enough that I understood what the format was. And this was a good foil to it, to take it to battle without a lot of games. Yeah. Let me just quote Patrick Chapin here. He says that Mark, this is actually what he told me. He didn't write this in an article, but he said that Mark knows always what the right questions to ask are. He can figure out the right questions to ask each time. Whereas most of the players accumulate a set of heuristics that they build an add-on. Mark can develop brand new heuristics every format. Mark is also the king of uh, what he calls killing your darling, getting you to stop playing with your pet card. Okay, here's a little bit more. A lot of people are trying to maximize the chances that they don't look like an idiot. And that doesn't actually lead you to winning the most. So what do you think? Did, uh, did Chapin get you, get you down? Did he get you correct? Yeah, it's it's funny because my professional career has been filling that exact same role. So like I'm a product guy for development teams and I'm the guy who just always asks like, why? Like, why are we building this? Why do we think this, this is the right thing to build? Why do we think this will make us money? And just like continually digging to like force people to validate all the decisions they're making. And it's just the exact same stuff I did when we were deck building and, and play testing for magic. Like why? Like, I get how these games feel, but why do we think this is going to suddenly win when the results aren't saying that, you know, asking questions like that. This is really fascinating because I'm also a product guy in my, in my day job. 
And I like to ask the why or keep peeling back the layers of the onion, as it were. Where do you think you got this sense of curiosity or inquisitiveness, inquisitiveness from? Is it a little bit of like being anti-authority or is it something else? Just, just curious. I think it's more the, the competitive nature. Like it's really hard to be the best when you just follow everyone. It's a lot easier to be the best when you differentiate from people and then you just figured out a better strategy than them. So like the Magic Online Championship that just happened where Jan Moritz Merkel was drafting Blade Splicer, pick one, pack one over Channel and, you know, Elspeth over Mana Crypt. And everyone's like, oh my God, how could you be doing this? It's such a huge mistake. It's like, well, he wins at a 73% clip and he's wildly successful with Cube over a really big sample size. And then I started thinking back to my career and the draft formats that I always did the best in were the things where I made very unorthodox picks. Like, I think it was like M11 or one of those form, one of the base set formats where infantry veteran was in there. And I just forced white aggro and first picked infantry veteran over basically everything and just had the most insane run on magic online. Like it was just like by far the best strategy. And there was another one in, uh, what was it? Alara block when it was just triple Alara, I just forced black red every time. Cause you just got these cards like Onyx Goblet that's like tuna black for an artifact, tap target player loses a life. That card's kind of garbage. Uh, well, it is garbage, but in like a black red, super aggressive beatdown deck, that card's actually pretty good. And I just figured that out and figured out the pool is really deep for black red beatdown. So I should just be forcing it. And those are things when I would talk to other players, they're like, you're insane. There's no way you should be doing this. Like these cards are terrible. And I'm like, okay, buddy, I'm just going to keep forcing it. I'm going to keep winning. And that's when I saw uh, how he was doing the cube draft and everyone was like, I don't know, you know, all these pros are saying you shouldn't do that pick. And I'm just thinking like, I'm pretty sure everyone's just wrong because his results say one thing. And like, whenever I've had insane success, I've done the same thing as him. I mean, to use an investment term, you have to find your alpha in magic, right? You have to find your edge and you can't, I guess it's like this for anything in life, really. Like you can always play it safe and just be content with like getting a B grade or something and just like always just like stay on the PT train, I guess back when there was like silver or something, just like play it safe, just play like something that will like nine, seven or like day two, you're at the event or whatever. But I guess if you really want to be great or you want to actually win the thing, you can't be thinking or doing what everyone else is doing, right? And so the one thing that I found find frustrating, even as a magic casual, I guess, uh, is just like the constant armchair quarterbacking of this is right and this is wrong. Like I don't, at the highest levels, or if you want to be great, you can't really think that, right? Yeah, like at minimum, if you looked at what Jan did in the cube drafts and you didn't walk away with I should try that, then you're doing something wrong. Yeah. So you could say, I, you know, I don't think it's right. I'm going to try it. I may not think it's going to work, but you got to try it. When someone's just doing something that's like so off the wall like that and they're having a ton of success, you got to try it. You got to just throw away your beliefs. And going back to Moneyball again, it, it's sort of like the, the real genius of the A's at that time and Billy Bean was just like, it's not about the individual pieces, right? It's about the actual overall game plan. And so this guy doesn't look very good, like physically, but he can get on base and that's what matters. So 
you know, maybe people shouldn't be looking at that individual pick, but obviously looking at the whole game plan instead, right? Yeah, and that that's exactly it. Like, Jan basically figured out that the best deck is just like a grindy control deck that has uh, very good value creatures and removal and just like good curve, good mana. And, you know, you won't have that explosive like turn one or turn two kill that you can sometimes get with like a cube draft. Um, but you're just going to over time win more games. And he figured that out. And that was like the exact same ability being it's like when you look at channel versus blade splicer in a vacuum, it's obvious the channel is the better card. But you're not playing in a vacuum. You're playing in a format, and you've got to construct a deck for that format. A bit of a transition here, but it looks like you're also still following Magic, uh, at least some of the Magic coverage. So, what, what's your involvement like these days when it comes to, um, you know, to Magic? Either playing it, or I know physical tournaments are hard, but uh, yeah, what's it like for you now in in 2021 or 2020 last year? Yeah, I'm a, I've been a big Twitch viewer ever since I became a father. So like pulling up Twitch, watching someone stream, well, you know, I still keep my son alive or I'm making him breakfast or something like that. Like, that's easy. Can't really play a game while you're doing those things. Like if your son's all of a sudden like, daddy, I need you. I'm like, well, I'm about to rope out over here. I can't do that. <laughs> um, so I'm a big viewer. Uh, and then every now and then I'll, I'll, get into a bug where I'll play a lot of arena whenever I think there's a good format. So like the current draft format is really fun, really robust. I've been playing a lot. Uh, one before this, I played almost none. So it's, it's pretty hit or miss. What are your thoughts about, you know, who some of the best players today are? Like, do you have any particular people you follow on the streams or in coverage? Like um, who would you equate to being like, you know, among the best right now, either in terms of playing or deck building? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, from a stream standpoint, I still follow, uh, Nassif the most. I like watching, uh, Caleb stream, um, cause he just cubes all the time. This is Caleb, uh, Durward? Yep. Okay. And then I'll watch like LSU when he streams. I would say I'm definitely out of it from knowing, you know, who the best is cause I don't follow along that much and who the heck knows what pro play is anymore these days. But if there's like a pro tournament, uh, you know, following the C, following like Corey Burkhart, you know, he's like a Michigan guy, is R.I.W. guy as well. So like, those are the guys that I'll tune in and watch. And then like Rietzel, Sperling, uh, LSV, like those are all friends. So it's more just watching my buddies, hope one of them spikes out the tournament. What are your thoughts about deck building in the modern age or not, not, not literally modern, the format, but just, just in con- contemporary times, like, deck building now and like just this huge amount of information being available you literally have the metagame change every couple of days like how, how are you feeling about that whole thing yeah it's different so now i think uh as a deck builder you know anyone can always break a format it's just harder now because information is so easy and so accessible as opposed to what it was like you know, 10 15 years ago but i think now the the one of the best skills that didn't wasn't that big back then is understanding how the format's going to evolve and how, you know, you'll see one deck just kind of taking over and then a metagame deck beats that for the next, you know, few tournaments and then metagame deck beats that for the next few tournaments. And then the original deck comes back on top because now it has a good matchup and seeing how 
the formats evolve and being able to stay one step ahead. So this deck won last week. So I think everyone's going to be out to get it and play the, the its worst matchup. So I'm going to play a deck that beats that. I think that's where the, the real the real alpha is these days. But, you know, it's great to brew. So much fun. Just got got to keep trying new things and keep brewing. Yeah. I mean, even Chapin in his articles now, or like if you look at somebody like him, look at like Sam Black, they're still constantly trying to... Sam Black has a really awesome Discord. And shout out to Sam Black. He's always uh, sharing his draft decks and his brews. And it's just like it's still very possible to do that. In fact, just based on our conversation so far, I feel like 20 year old Mark, if he were transplanted into 2021, you know, not having a kid and still being in college, a lot of your skills and background would be super relevant today. If you're still willing to put, put in like, you know, 40, 50 hours a week on, on magic. Right. Yeah. I would say today's game actually probably better suits my, my skill set um, because there's not as big of an emphasis on just being very creative from a deck idea standpoint, which was probably my weakest characteristic as a deck builder. And there's more emphasis on just like being more efficient with your time, being honest with yourself and reading the format, which is, you know, my strengths as a deck builder. What about like recent printings, like fire philosophy of cards? Like when you look at stuff like Uro and uh, Oko Thief of Crowns, like, do you just sort of like side eye and just just grin or are you still loving it because it's it's magic no matter what the cards that come out of it are? Uh, every banning that's happened in the past however many years when they just started going crazy, another small part of me died inside. And <laughs> okay. a larger part of me died when every quarterly earnings call comes for Hasbro because the reality of the situation is sales just keep going up so it makes financial sense for them to keep doing what they're doing. So we're really never going to get it to stop. And sales have kept going crazy through COVID when they killed real life tournaments. So I don't have a strong feeling that they're going to put what they, the prize money and effort into real life tournaments that they did. And all the things that I loved about magic, all the friendships that I built, like literally we're talking 25 years of my life. Uh, is just not going to exist anymore in the way I knew it. And I'm starting to turn into like, old man, get off my lawn. Because <laughs> I, want it, I want it back how it was when I was a kid. I'm guessing you were probably also not super excited when they introduced Planeswalkers and, and things like that along the years, right? Yeah, Planeswalkers I didn't like because it, it just added a different dynamic to the game. Um, I think they're good for the game overall they're just incredibly hard to uh, tune the power level. So it's like a really big strain on the, the design team, the play design team, but I think overall they're good for magic. And I was wrong, certainly wrong on that one because it helps players identify more with the characters in the game, which I think is really valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, magic is just getting more and more successful. It's incredible. Like, you know, from a company standpoint, if, if I'm like an employee thinking about where do I want to work, like Wizards would be the type of company that I'd want to work at because they just keep growing. They have this insane product that only ever goes up and to the right. Like it's a product person's dream from someone who's poured 25 years of their life into it. And the game isn't the same or likely to ever be the same as it was for the 25 years that I was doing it. 
that part's sad. It sounds like you're not ever going to be able to completely walk away from magic, like cold turkey, right? Like you always be, even if it's like firing up arena once in a while or like watching magic covers, like it'll always be part of your, part of your future, right? Yeah. It's, I will play magic until the day I die. Like I get, uh, you know, I got a few buddies who have kids and then a couple of other buddies and we try and get together once every few months for like a guy's weekend. And we just like cube draft and drink all weekend long. So like, I still, I'm always going to be doing that. I'm always going to be gaming. It's just to the extent. And, you know, I would be so much happier if, you know, the world went back to normal after everyone got vaccinated, all that stuff. And then there was all the live tournaments again, and it was just as many as existed before. And I could actually understand what I need to do to qualify for the pro tour rather than have to read 10 articles. Like that would be amazing. That would make me such a happy person. I would actually like figure, I'd figure it out. Like I'd figure out how to devote more time. I'd do whatever it took, you know? Um, I just don't think we're ever going to get back to that. If we don't get back to that in the short term or even medium term, however you define it, would you consider like maybe as your kid gets older or something, it's like you don't have to watch him all the time. Like, would you consider trying to get into what they call the PTs now, like the MCs and try to make another run and all that stuff? Yeah. I mean, for me, the biggest struggle is I already don't have enough time. I can't just devote hours to figure out how I qualify for it and then still have to play in all the tournaments and win them to do so. So like, it would be fantastic if there was just an easy to understand way of how do I qualify for that and what actually is it. Um, So from a product perspective, they could definitely improve a lot more on communicating what the product is in that sense when it comes to organized play. But yeah, if they turn it back on, there's a Grand Prix, like I'll go to Grand Prix. I mean, I, before, I was always going to one or two a year just to kind of see everyone and I'll probably go back to that. Um, you know, if there's like a qualifier that I can play on a weekend or something like that, I'll probably play like one or two of those a year. So like I'll always be doing some level. And then obviously, you know, my dream is when my son gets older, I just teach him how to play and we do it together. That would be awesome. Yeah. In fact, I think that's what, uh, Adam and Dana Fisher are doing. Like, um, if you know her stream and stuff like that. Uh, She actually, I interviewed her for Humans of Magic and and her dad. And uh, she actually learned to play magic before learning how to read, which is uh, pretty, pretty remarkable. Um, But I think she's got a very high IQ. She's actually probably one of the smartest players I've talked to for magic of any age. So that's awesome. Yeah. One thing I do want to touch on, although this is in the past and we're all talking about moving forward is, um, I think it was really tough. It is really tough. Not was, um, you know, over the years that um, you were considered for Hall of Fame candidacy and didn't quite make it. I know that uh, some of the folks that I talked to to do background on for this interview were the biggest proponents of you getting in. Can you talk a bit about how you feel about it now in 2021? Because I, I understand from talking to them that it was really hard for, hard on you um, during those times where you were eligible and uh, you, you missed the mark in some way. But um, what, what does it mean for you now? Because I think a lot of people think of you as a Hall of Fame caliber player. It's not just like, okay, did he get in or not? But it's, it's more like, I think in the history books, it's pretty much known that Mark Overholtz was like one of the best players in his generation 
so that's not in question. But how do you feel about maybe now that you're a dad or you're like mellowed out and time has passed? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've definitely just come to terms with the fact that, you know, I don't think I'll ever get in the Hall of Fame. Um, and it was like certainly a heartbreaking realization. So if you look at the people who were in the post-Magic Online era, so when information was more readily accessible, and of that list who had four Pro Tour top eights with the win that aren't in the Hall of Fame, it's like me and maybe one or two other people. And the people that are is like, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 people. So it's like, it, it feels really unlucky that I'm not in the Hall of Fame when you just look at it in that lens, which doesn't feel like an unfair lens to look at it in. And there were a couple of years where I was close. Uh, there were those couple of years where I was close and didn't get in and like literally cried when I found out. Um, it stung a lot when there was the year that I was the closest and the two people, it was like the two people who got in both got banned. And it's just like, <laughs> I had a lot of good breaks in my career of just like, you know, you have to, the top eight approach tour. So like I got lucky in that sense at some key times, but man, when it comes to hall of fame, it feels like I got really unlucky. And that was for years that was hard for me. Like Hall of Fame season, my partner, Melissa, would joke like, oh, it's Hall of Fame season again, because I would just be like fighting with people on Twitter and, you know, drinking heavily at night. <laughs> so I'm not doing that anymore. But yeah, it was definitely took a while to come to accept the fact that like, I'm just not going to make it. It sounds like you were unlucky in the sense that you were just not in the right era right literally i talked to uh people who believe that uh you know if you had exactly your the same career but you did it like four years later or five years later you'll be in the hall of fame like that's kind of crazy if you think about it yeah like if i just had my success when twitter existed i'd probably be in the hall of fame but i did it before twitter existed so it's like when I started becoming eligible, a lot of people were like, oh, I don't know who Mark is. And my like career, my success was over like a four year span. So I kind of like burned fast and burned bright. Um, so that by the time I became eligible, like I had already been off the tour for a couple of years and there was like just enough people that kind of didn't know who I was. So yeah, it's like, it definitely, definitely feels like it was just poor timing. Just like too many weird things aligned for me to not make it. I mean, other than trying to, trying to uh, be born at a later point in time <laughs> or something, like, was there anything you think you could have done differently maybe to, to uh, perhaps like rally or swing the votes more in your favor? Um, I think, you know, when I was uh, younger and successful, I was certainly like more brash and that was like, you know, we talked about how the game was just different back then with how people treated each other. Um, you know, I would always be extremely polite to just like a random person asking me for help or can you take a look at my sealed deck, stuff like that. I would always try and help them. But with another competitive player, um, I would try and get my edge, not like the LSV and sportsman like, but I might get a dig in here or there. And I would certainly run my mouth about you know, how good I was in the money drafts, which was some people really rubbed them the wrong way. 
So I think like that definitely led to people not wanting to vote for me too much. I could have done that differently. You know, looking back, like I certainly wouldn't do that same stuff now when I'm just like older and not as, uh, I mean, you're just like young and full of fire. Well, you say yeah. that, you say that Mark, but I don't think for something like a, this huge honor, like the hall of fame, would you really not vote for someone just because you didn't like their personality? That, I mean, I'm not a magic pro, but that doesn't sound all that plausible to me, but maybe I'm just naive. I, I mean, I guess I'm just trying to figure out why when you look at my resume compared to other people, sure. maybe it's because they didn't, they didn't like my personality. Uh, maybe they, from a metric standpoint, there are some things that they value more that, you know, I'm not looking at, but yeah, like that. And there was definitely towards the end of my career, I was getting pretty burned out mm -hmm. and, you know, definitely could have approached some tournaments in a better way could have probably gotten that fifth pro tour top eight if I had just done some things differently, but I'm sure every single pro player has regrets like that where they're like, if I could go back and do it all over again, I would have tried harder for this tournament or I would have played this deck for that tournament. I mean, that's just life, right? It's not even, yeah. it's not even magic, but uh, what happened later to that led to the burnout? Um, it was just like a lot of travel and, Back then, there wasn't a ton of money. I mean, there still isn't a ton of money in the game. But, you know, at least now you have something like Twitch where top players can supplement their income and try and at least have some somewhat stable source of income. And with the MPL, they did a lot to create more stability. Like, it varies from year to year who's in the MPL. But for that year, you have a pretty stable source of income. So back then, it was just, like, too varied. And having every tournament kind of mean can I pay my bills for the next few months just wears on you over time like that uncertainty and it was just like burning me out and then I just wasn't really having as much fun playing the game like the you know bitter blossom and the blood braid elf was like kind of a brutal couple of years there where like the formats just weren't that fun uh, so that that all kind of perfect storm for me to just get burned out, lose interest a bit. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, Hey man, like time amends a lot of things. And I know you had like then started playing magic more like in recent, like five to 10 years, I see you a little, saw you a little bit on like SCG coverage and various places, uh, GP. So it sounds like you still have the fire in some shape or form. Like maybe it's not as strong as you were in your, in your twenties, but like you, if COVID subsides, maybe we'll see you back on the, at a physical event somewhere, right? Yeah. I mean, there's been, you, you can just, I can never give it up. And every now and then there's a format where I just really want to brew. So like I was retired, uh, living in the Caribbean, working for Pinnacle and Antonio DeRosa qualified for a pro tour and was like, Hey, do you help me test? And, okay, sure. So I literally just proxied up decks and played against myself for like a month because he was like, you know, at home for a while or on a vacation. And then I just built the pure steel paladin deck that everyone did like really well with at that tournament and just kind of broke the format. Built the whole deck, like the whole main deck without ever playing a game against another human being. And just got the got the itch, just really wanted to brew. And then, you know, didn't didn't really got the itch a few other times along the way, didn't brew anything great. And then when there was that uh, that team event where 
uh, like the masters or legends or whatever they called it, that team event, um, helped Nassif's team brew up the Nexus of Fate deck that was really mm-hmm. good in standard and just really got the itch. And like him and I both had, uh, you know, like 45 out of the 60 cards were the same, but the other 15 were pretty different. And we ended up, they ended up going with my deck. Um, but yeah, I just got the fever bad then. It was just like playing a ton. Like Dave Williams was coming over. We were playing like every day for, you know, a few weeks there. Is Dave Williams still involved in, in Magic? I guess he, he st- still does play the occasional tournament, right? I think he, uh, I think he was not happy with some online MC that he did. Uh, this is very tangential and he, he didn't want to do that again. But uh, hopefully when physical tournaments come back, uh, it'll be better. Yeah, I think he, I don't know if he's played much recently, but if there's ever a team limited tournament, Dave will be back. (laughs) So Mark, at the end of your, I think your career is not actually ending if you're still playing magic, but how do you want to be remembered? Like, what do you want your legacy to be? That's a great question. Um, You know, obviously I'd like to be in the hall of fame, but I think like, uh, my legacy is probably best as a top deck builder. You know, like you look at a lot of the success that Nassif and Chapin have had, and, you know, even the success that I had, it was all because of all of us. You know, we had like a pretty insane run of a few years there where like when you would go to a constructed tournament, uh, you, you wouldn't want to get paired against us because the decks that we were coming up with were just so great just to be a the deck builder or a deck builder's deck builder just just to be that 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 be your legacy would be great right yeah i mean it's definitely awesome that you know you have people like lsv chapin to see if like you know top players in the game hall of famers like top x all time and they'll talk about me like you know i'm on the same page as them like i'm on the same level so it's like even if i don't have the hall of fame don't have the recognition, at least the people whose opinions I really care about, they all think that I'm, I'm as good as I thought I was. I guess I think that I am. Yeah. I think that's actually a really uh, good place to, uh, to, to, to sort of uh, tail end it. Like, is there anything at all that you want to get off your chest? Just anything at all that, that comes to mind? No, I mean, I think we covered it. I guess the only thing is buy Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, t- t- actually talk to me a bit about that. So were you an early crypto guy, or crypto blockchain guy or what? So when I was working at Pinnacle, some of the Pinnacle guys were trading Bitcoin. And this is in like, I want to say like 2011, 2012, like really early on, like when it made its first run up to a hundred bucks, I think. Um, and when they told me about it, I was like, oh my God, this is genius. Like, this is the future. It's like internet money, censorship resistant. No one controls it. It just works. Like it makes perfect sense. But I just never kind of bought it. And then uh, I, you know, I can sleep every night because I'm pretty sure they were all using Mt. Gox, which is like the infamous, like biggest exchange hack in, in Bitcoin's history. Right. People didn't know that was actually MTG related too, right? Like, yeah, yeah. To be, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like the fact that it was MTG related and that was like the only game in town back then, like must have been like 99% that I would have bought my Bitcoins there and kept them there. So I just tell myself that so I don't lose my mind that I could have bought it like a hundred bucks and didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of knew about it. And then in 2017, when like the boom was happening, 
I had just left a job in early 2017 and the, the lead developer on the project told me something that just like really stuck with me and resonated where he's just like, yeah, I always try and find emerging markets and emerging technologies and get a job in them because the, the, the supply is always really low for skilled people that are in that new space. And I was like, that makes perfect sense. And then blockchain was blowing up. So I just like dove in deep and tried to learn everything I could. And this is when like the ICO boom was happening. And, you know, I bought all my crypto at like the end of 2017 at like the peak and wrote it all the way down. Um, so definitely like lost money then, but just like stuck with it. And then had learned enough where I got some, started getting jobs with crypto companies. So I did that. Um, and they were just like some ICO companies that flamed out. Um, but then I just obviously stuck around and really believed in it from a value prop standpoint. And then when PayPal turned on uh, crypto for like, you know, Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, like Bitcoin Cash in October, I'm like, oh, this is it. I just need to shove all my money into Bitcoin. Like this is, this is going to be the tipping point. Because back in 2017, uh, people... PayPal turning it on was one of the things people would talk about when they're like, this is going to take us to the next level. We're going to go from 20K Bitcoin to 50K Bitcoin. You know, like that was the thing. There were like a handful of things, which is kind of funny because they're all happening now. It's like inst institutional investors are buying Bitcoin. Morgan Stanley just announced today they're going to let their clients buy Bitcoin and do it for them. Like that was another thing that was just like, oh, if this happens, we're going from 20 to 50K. It's like, uh, Fortune 500 company putting Bitcoin on their balance sheet. Tesla did that. That's happening. And there's all these things that are just like happening where it's like back then if that happened, you just needed one of them. And now there's like 10 that are all happening and more are happening every day. So I think uh, there's a ton of momentum. Mm -hmm. And then when you think about uh, Robinhood and the GameStop stuff, Mm -hmm. like financial trading is just such an antiquated platform. Like, so most people don't know there's this thing called T plus two settlement, which is created because back in the day when you actually had stock as a physical piece of paper, you had to give people an amount of time to drive it over to your office and hand it to you if you bought it from them. So what they have is T plus two, which stands for trade plus two days. So you had basically two days after the trade to drive it over to someone's office and drop off your stock certificate. That's how stuff settled which is super archaic and obviously should just not be happening with modern technology. But what happens is during that two day span, someone could just like come up short or just not give you the stock or any number of things could happen. So there's essentially these like, you know, insurance companies, they have a different term, but that's easiest to understand where they insure all the transactions right. and then you can put a deposit with them. But the more volatile something goes, the more likely that something bad is going to happen. Someone won't want to settle up. So that's what happened to Robinhood was essentially the company who's insuring all these transactions said, you got to up your deposit a ton because the volatility on all these stocks is going through the roof and we're scared you won't be able to settle up. Yep. Yeah, it was really interesting, actually. I don't know if you heard it, but like I know when Vlad first appeared on Clubhouse uh, being grilled by Elon Musk, he didn't give a really good answer. But later on, he appeared on the All In podcast and he actually gave a pretty good um, explanation of, uh, I feel like the guy despite being like running like a billion dollar company, still like getting better and better at PR by the day. But like he was telling about saying like the Robin Hood clearinghouse told us like, Hey, look, like this is why we have to shut, shut it down. Like, cause people like me were like ascribing these like malicious motives or like, you know, these 
other explanations for why things happen. But if you hear his explanation later, it actually makes perfect sense. Like um, it, going along the lines of what you said, sorry to interject, but. Yeah, it's, it's not a, it wasn't a matter of collusion. It was a matter of negligence. Yes. So they were very negligent when it came to their risk management, Yes, which they should have known because in the beginning of COVID, they had to do a similar thing where uh, when Dave Portnoy started going crazy with like his day trader and like got all of his followers to trade stocks instead of care about sports because there were no sports during COVID, yeah. they had to shut down some of the stocks then because they had so much volatility. So they like had a model for what to do and they could have managed their risk better, but they just didn't, which I get because you essentially have to put hundreds of millions or billions of dollars just holding an escrow which is really rough for a company to do. But when the core to your company and your product is being able to let people buy and sell stocks, it's like, that's also just the cost to doing business. So to like kind of come back to the beginning, you know, blockchain just is perfect because it's like this technology that's built on the concept of trustless transactions. You, because uh, everyone is confirming the blocks and verifying that everything is good. You don't need like the insurance company to make sure that you deliver your stocks on a time. It can all just be tokenized and built on the blockchain and then you can all prove it out and it's trustless. So it's just the perfect solution. Now you just got to convince the, you know, multi-trillion dollar wall street entity machine that they should give up a lot of their value and adopt it, which is going to be hard, but mm -hmm. You know, you can't fight against technology forever. For sure. And I'm bullish on, on Bitcoin and crypto as well. I'm only kicking myself for not buying more back in 2017 and like during the dip, right? Yeah. Uh, for me, the biggest eye-opening moment was just like, I think I was like maybe watching Andreas Antonopoulos or I read one of his books, um, Internet of Money. I also had read uh, Sapiens, uh, which was uh, like history of the human race, but it tried to describe currency. Then I started thinking like, wait, how is this different from like any other store of value? It's not really. And it's not. And currency is like the, the biggest uh, religion perpetuated by mankind anyway. So it's like what gives something value is simply what others believe when others believe it has value. So if you go by that very simple primitive logic, then these things have value, especially now, as you said, like institutional investors are in. So it's like, it, how do I put it, Mark? Like, it's not even about how I, I personally believe it or not anymore. It's about like, it's really just about the market forces. And if enough, pe enough people believe that it's true, then it's going to be true. I think it's, uh, I think it's like that for a lot of things, you know? That's, yeah, that's how I feel. I think it's turned to where before you would have a very traditional investor who would think it would be too risky to have 1% of their portfolio in Bitcoin. Now they're thinking it's too risky not to have 1% of their portfolio in Bitcoin. And I think people are drastically underestimating when you add up all those 1% of portfolios, how much money that really is that's just starting to get in the game. Um, I think there's still, still plenty of room to go. And it will be a, a new, just like you said, a new store of value where people will park their money in certain market cycles. So like where we're at right now, where we think like we're about to have a bubble burst, I think moving forward, you'll see this be a spot where people want to have Bitcoin. Now, how are you feeling about this uh, newer craze of NFTs? I, I had a friend buy uh, an NFT LaMelo ball rookie card or moment <laughs> or whatever it is on NBA Top Shots the other day. And I'm starting to think that his 
$3,800 investment might not actually be bad. So how are you feeling about NFTs in general? I'm actually working with some friends to build an NFT platform. So yeah, we, I think uh, NFTs are definitely here to stay, but it's a scenario where it's like early internet and we're trying to figure out who's going to be like eBay and Amazon and who's going to be the pets.com and you know, what's the best use case. So you know, the use cases, I think they're definitely here to stay. I think our like sports memorabilia, I think that one is, is definitely going to be here for a long time. And it'll be, it'll have its, its booms and busts, but it'll always be around. I think uh, another great use case is for gaming items. So imagine you're a gaming developer and you're like, okay, I want to build like my magic type game. Uh, I want to have like some concept of trading or something like that. Well, now you could go to like an NFT platform and they'll just give that to you out of the box. So now you speed up your development timeline because you just turn all your in-game cards to NFTs. They have a marketplace that you can just hook up to some APIs. You can have trading. You just validate what's in people's you know, wallets to know if they can play the deck they registered with, like all that stuff. That's incredibly valuable. And you get the value prop to your players of you can actually monetize this down the road. So some games like Hearthstone, Arena, they have their walled garden where they don't ever want people to really monetize their content on a secondary market, but that's a differentiator. So there are games, you know, as a player, you really want that. You don't want to just pump five grand into Arena over five years and never get any of it back. You want to be able to reclaim some of that. So that's going to open up opportunity for other game companies to go after them. And NFTs are a really great tool to do that and very easily communicate to the users, hey, this is going to have lasting value. And you yeah. get the other, so I, just, I could go on forever, but this other one's a really good one. So yeah. imagine you own an NFT where it's like a Black Lotus. And then I launch my next card game. And I say, everyone who owns a Black Lotus gets a mock Sapphire in card game number two. Mm-hmm. That's really valuable. And you can do stuff like that with NFTs. You could even try and vampire away users where you made a game with Black Lotus. And I'm going to say, I'm going to look at everyone's wallet with a Black Lotus and give them a mock Sapphire for my game mm-hmm. for free. So like, there's some really interesting dynamics there. And the proposition alone of, I'm going to speed up your development timeline to get this game to market with trading. I think like that's extremely powerful. So I think those are two good use cases. There are others that, you know, some people are talking about, you know, who knows if they'll be here long-term, but there will certainly be more than just those two. Are you able to divulge whether you're, what you're building is fitting that use case? Like what you just described? Yeah. So what I want to do is build a platform rather than a specific use case. So I want to make something that's more open-ended that everyone can just come up with whatever ideas they want with related to NFTs. And I'm just the one who lets them build it and then lets them sell it in the marketplace. So I kind of turn into, to like an eBay where it doesn't matter what the product is. doesn't matter what the best use case is. I'm just letting people sell it to each other and then take a cut of the transaction. So there's, there's a number of platforms out there like this. I think we've uh, we found a good niche that no one's really doing yet. There's you know some platforms that overlap with 80% of us, and then some platforms that overlap with you know a different 80% of us. But no one that I found that's 100% of what we're trying to do. Excellent, excellent. Wow, I mean, you've got all kinds of uh, stuff going on. So uh, 
Uh, I'm sure we could go on for another two hours, but Mark, I want to <laughs> thank you so much for your time today. Uh, actually, there's one last question I uh, somebody asked on Twitter. What are your thoughts on um, Drew Carey as the new Price Price's Right host? Oh man, it's he replacing a legend, of course. Yeah, he's like, you know, I don't know if you've ever been as fat. I'm sure many of the the listeners have been, where you just have to have a job because you need a paycheck. And it's just like draining you and you got to go into work every day. That's what Drew Carey seems like when he's hosting The Price is Right. I mean, Bob was amazing. During all the commercial breaks, he would joke around with the audience. Like his his wit was so sharp and it was so impressive because like he was a pretty old guy. And he was just like, you felt that too when you were on the show, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was just, it was amazing. I'm so happy that I got to be on the show when he was still hosting it because it was just like it was certainly an experience i'm getting that vibe with drew with prices right and also i've always had that vibe with like louis with on the family feud like it's just like (laughs) hey man all the more power to you your family gets to eat but it's like it's just a job you know i think drew carey was on um was it whose line is it anyway or some other show too where he it, it felt like that he was just sort of uh dialing it in or clocking it in right yeah, like uh, Steve Harvey what was the one Steve that he Harvey. hosted. Yeah. He was a good host. He actually got into it. You're like, all right, he's like, he's having fun here. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm here, so I might as well have fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much today. I know we went all over the place on stuff, but really the goal of Humans of Magic is to give people some insight into how you are as a person and what you're up to right now. You know, I think we kind of touched on a good mix of uh, past and present and future. So uh, I want to thank you so much for taking the time today. Yeah, it was a blast. I really enjoyed it.